0: From HerbMentor.com, this is HerbMentor Radio. You're listening to HerbMentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Christopher Hobbs. Christopher is a fourth-generation botanist with 40 years' experience in teaching herbal medicine, co-founder of the American Herbalist Guild, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, founder of an extract company, industry consultant, teacher, and author of... Uh, 20 books most famously the peterson's field guide to medicinal plants of the western u.s women's herbs women's health and herbal remedies for dummies christopher is currently working on a doctorate at berkeley and you can visit him at christopher hobbs that's com, where there are many wonderful resources for you to explore christopher welcome
1: thank you thank you john
0: and, and that resume, you know, what I said there didn't even really scratch the surface. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to keep busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you have. <laughs> in you know, was- <laughs> yeah. in trouble otherwise. Yeah. You know, I I was um, I mentioned the the Herbal Remedies for Dummies book. I think a while back it was like the first Dummies book, like you know whatever for Dummies book that I ever bought. You know, and I and um, and though I didn't consider myself a dummy in herbs at the time, I um but I, I just learned a lot from this book, and um I just love how you put the information together. And but what I really liked specifically in the beginning there was there's a lot of just right right in the right in the out off, out the gate. You're just like really getting into. A lot of safety stuff and what to look out for and what not to do, and um, but that was, was that your intention there with the, this book. I know you did it 12 years ago, but I I know like you know, is do you see a lot of misinformation going? Like the same amount of misinformation going on today as you did back then, like 12 years ago?
1: Um, yeah, I think they're maybe similar because um, I think there's a lot more good quality information out there, and especially mm-hmm. on the web, but. Uh also, there, there are a lot of claims that you see in the marketplace. And um, I, I think there, there, yeah, there is about the same amount of misinformation. I think there's more good information and more bad information. <laughs> so there's just more of everything. And, and it's up to, uh, I think, up to an herb consumer or an herb user to educate themselves with all this incredible good stuff that's out there. Including on the web and uh, be an informed user. That's that's what herbal medicine is all about. is is it self care. And of course, there are herbalists out there that good, well trained herbalists that you can go to, and get a, a differential diagnosis and a holistic health plan and, and an herbal plan. But uh, I think it's I think herbal medicine is the people's medicine, and it's pretty refreshing in this day and age of uh, corporate medicine that you can actually grow peppermint in your backyard and go out and, and harvest it and make a cup of tea with the fresh leaves and, and, uh, and ease your, your gas pains or, or stomach ache and uh, not have to go off to the doctor or, and, uh, and get such, uh, such good effects with, with something that you can grow in your backyard and also that smells good and, and uh, attracts butterflies. Yeah, Excellent.
0: Um, you know, why, why you were... Somebody had... Um written in a question and it just reminds me because you're just saying about how it's a people's medicine and 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 there seems to be a lot of concern um i you know because i'm running this website where people are getting like right online there's there's so much information flying around and um and you never know what's the truth and not the truth as far as all these regulation stuff going on and so you know what's your antidote for uh for um you know all these different rules and regulations that seem to go up for a bill, then they're not in the Congress, and they're this and they're that. I mean, what do you usually tell people who bring this up to you? Because I'm sure you get it all the
1: time. You're talking about the codex or, or what what That is the things the... related
0: to it, you know, because it seems like any kind of FDA type of thing that goes around the Internet somehow always gets linked to the whole codex <laughs> thing, you know? Right. Like, I get confused myself, you know?
1: Well, um, you know, the FDA is rather whimsical, in the sense of they have field offices and and uh, a lot of a lot of herbal medicine i think what's sold out there how practitioners are presenting themselves and practicing these are all pretty gray areas and so it's oftentimes a little whimsical what the fda or the or fta the federal trade um is it fta yeah fta um what these regulatory agencies, what what they might do how what action they might take it's a little bit whimsical because many of these are are just um, not fixed in stone in europe there There are definitely more regulations and and they're they're more um, strict on on enforcing them. but I think in our country we we really have in north America we have one of the the most open and free climates for practicing herbal medicine uh, professionally. As a lay herbalist and selling products, and and even though I think regulations are increasing, and of course with the um, GMPs in place now, finally, the good manufacturing practices that that require smaller companies, even uh, even a home home business, uh, to follow certain reg- guidelines about manufacturing and cleanliness and so forth. Claims, of course, um, despite all that, we have an incredibly open System here i mean it 's much tighter in Europe than it is here and and many other parts of the world, so we should kind of celebrate the fact that we have have such an such openness in our society to alternatives and of course some states i don't i don 't know how many now, but California and Michigan have um, a freedom health freedom act that, that allows people to if they disclose what their training is, for instance, if you're a lay herbalist and you took a training course from say, Michael Tierra or mm-hmm. some one of the schools, uh, you can disclose that, and you can say, "Well, I've had three years of experience as a as a practicing herbalist, and I specialize in this this and this type of maybe um, self-limiting conditions like colds and flus or whatever your specialty is." And as long as you de- disclose what your training and background is. And you're not making exorbitant claims, and uh you know you're free to practice as a as a lay herbalist and that's and you won't be prosecuted and and that's you know that's that's really amazing because I remember in the even in the nineties i I was practicing in the early nineties I was practicing as a as a lay herbalist and and uh, we were we were constantly in fear that we would be uh, prosecuted I knew doctors that that were actually prosecuted for giving herbal supplements to their patients in the late 80s and early 90s. So the climate was quite a bit different then, and it's opened up quite a bit, even though I do hear dooms, you know, people talking about, well, the regulations are increasing and our freedoms are being taken away and so forth. I think we have an incredibly open system and a lot of freedoms to be thankful for. But, now, that may change, right. but uh, that, that remains to be seen yet.
0: But it seems like to me when I hear that I think that kind of stuff, and people bring up fear that way. To me, it's just a call to say, "Well, you know, nobody can take away the herbs that grow in your garden or your backyard and your ability to, to make medicine with those and share them with your community."
1: No, yeah. that's absolutely right, and <clears throat> that's what's so incredible about herbs is that they, again they are the people's medicine, and they they will always be open and free to use. I mean, you can go wildcrafting, and there are many weeds around that that are. Very useful, such as St. John's wort is a weed. It's grows all over Northern California, Southern Oregon, and uh, you know how are they going to get rid of that? And, <laughs> and and garlic, for instance. I mean, are they going to ban garlic? You know? So, so it, it you know it's just it, it's there. It's free of spices. Most of the spices in our kitchen cabinet are also, you know, very common. Exactly, no Humeric. more
0: spices, people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's, uh, that's going They're gonna have regulatory labels on on uh, turmeric and cinnamon. <laughs> oh cinnamon for you know you can't use it for diabetes. You have to just put it in your on your toast or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. but but you know don't think of it as a as a as a as a healing agent or a preventative. Whatever yeah, you,
0: you go to the pizza restaurant. There's a little label on the uh, oregano.
1: <laughs> or the or the pepper. Sh- you know the little shaker where they put all those uh, cayenne peppers in there. Man, that's that's good stuff. <laughs> I always think that that counteracts, you know, if I, I don't have pizza very often, but we have a really nice uh, pizza place here in Davis that that has a whole wheat crust and organic and lots of vegetables on it. And, and so once in a great while I indulge, but I always put lots of up cayenne, you know, those ground up cayenne
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, pepper pods on it. And I think, well, that probably counteracts any of the cholesterol that i'm getting from 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 all that cheese but it tastes so good that that i think it counteracts it too
0: exactly exactly so um so what really struck me when when looking at your background is um fourth generation botanist and herbalist and you know as i'm a dad you're a dad and we're both dads of young kids and and um you know what was that like going out and collecting plants with your dad and what were you know that must have been really cool
1: well it really was and that got me going on a path that i'm still on today and and um he was <clears throat> he was a he taught ornamental ornamental horticulture mm. <clears throat> excuse me he taught um well he was an entomologist and a botanist but he taught ornamental horticulture he knew all the plants as we were driving around southern california i'd say dad what's that what's that what's that tree over there and What's that flowering plant, and he 'd always say, "Oh well, that, well, that's that's a ornamental cypress or juniper, or you know I still remember asking him a lot of questions and just had a natural interest, I guess, maybe because he was interested and then uh, in the summers, we went to to uh, Tahoe for about four or five years when I was around eight, nine, ten eleven, twelve, and he was he was a professor, so he had the summer off so uh, he took us to Tahoe, and and uh, and he was an agricultural inspec- inspection uh, person at the border there, just for two months during the summer. And so we got to run wild and and uh, in the fields and forests there around Tahoe. And this was in the early days when there wasn't as much development, and uh, to see a lot of flowers and plants and develop a love of nature. And I'd always take things to him and say, "What's this? You know, what's this plant?" I don't and uh, so he he was pretty interactive with that and um he yeah he was just such a big influence on my life and i'm still you know i'm a basically my phd is in is in botany and um, all related fields and chemistry and pharmacology and so forth but he he's still inspiring me today and and uh, he he passed at around 83 and he was still yeah. collecting Plants and insects out in the field, mm-hmm. and still excited about his work. And mm. I hope that's me too. I'm, I'm still very excited about learning, and and um, as I get older, and and um, just so thankful that, that I had that influence in my life.
0: Yeah, but what was really struck me too is that you know coming of age in the, especially coming of age uh, in the what it probably. In the late '60s, early '70s, I'm just trying to figure out the math here between everything and 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 uh, that you actually didn't rebel again. <laughs> you know? Christopher turns into a stockbroker because his parents were herbalists and farmers. Well,
1: as it turns out, you know, my dad was was about as radical as I was. I mean, I was a hippie. I became a hippie in the late '60s, and and just knew that that was the lifestyle for me. And and uh, he. He was actually uh, into Zen Buddhism before, before that and used to take me to Krishnamurti to hear him speak in, wow. in Ojai, and in Ohi and was actually smoking pot and dropping LSD before I was. So, so he, he was a pretty exceptional. You know, he was a college professor, so I, I guess you could say he was a radical thinker. But, <clears throat> but yeah, he, I didn't have to rebel from that. I, he was right in line with my, with my thinking.
0: Well, yeah, I was thinking of that TV show—it was in the '80s, where the where with Michael F- J. Fox, right, where his parents were hippies, and then he, he becomes a Republican, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah,
1: it's a good. Well, record. it usually happens that way, doesn't it? Every <laughs> yeah. other generation. I'm expecting my son, though. He's—I've taken him out to the fields ever since he was. I mean, I carried him out in the garden and and around the roses and around our herb garden when he was like a few hours old. So. So uh, I've been, we've been spending a lot of time outside. So I'm, I really am. I do joke that I expect him to be president of McDonald's or something. So. You know,
0: I, I same with our kids. You know, I've done that out. You know, right from the time they were born, and and you know they're in a wilderness school, and they and they they have a love in nature. They're out there, and they and 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 it's it's great. You know, but. But still, when my when my my son comes up about plants, or something recently comes up, Dad, I got this great idea for an herbal video game where there's these zombies, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. well, at least it's herbal.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my son's really into into Legos. He's a he's a yeah. total Lego freak.
0: Oh, we were just yeah. down in California. We took a trip down to Legoland. That was great.
1: Yeah, well, we were down there too over the holidays. Oh, we just
0: uh, followed you
1: up there. It was awesome.
0: <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was
1: really fun. I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it was. It was good. I had a good time there. Except, so except Kimberly, my wife's back went out about halfway through. <laughs> Speaking about backs <laughs> before, and it was on the little airplane ride. You know, yeah. I we we still can't figure that one out. But anyway, um, but you know, another thing about your uh, uh, background, um, you know, is uh, um, really interesting. That on your mother's side, you had a lot of herbalists, and Did you say your grandmother. Studied with a Chinese herbalist or something, or
1: yeah, she That's she actually did, did. My great grandmother was a tarot reader and a and a, a lawyer in in New York, and wow. she left her husband and moved out to Montana and became a tarot reader and herbalist. And this, you know, this was pretty radical for the for that day. This oh, was yeah. probably in the late eighteen hundreds, and or, or very early nineteen hundreds. And then my grandmother, my my mother's mother. Uh, was was the was the neighborhood herbalist on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena? They moved from New York out to out to Pasadena in the early 1920s, I think, or even 1919, 1920, right around there. And uh, she had her own herb garden in the front front yard, right in Pasadena, there on Colorado Boulevard. And and uh, then she took the trolley, the red line, when it, before it was dismantled by Goodyear. Uh, she took the trolley from Pasadena down into LA, and yeah, studied with a Chinese herbalist for several years. I, I read, I have her notes and wow. some of her formulas and so forth. And and she, they had they had solar panels on their roof, you know, for hot water, and uh, and an organic gar- herb garden. And this is in the t- early 1920s. Wow! So it was pretty pretty cool. That's
0: fascinating. Gosh, that'd be yeah. That's 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 a whole that that's that's really cool. I mean, I compare that to my family and where they came from and I'm like, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a miracle that I'm even talking to you. <laughs> well, um, when the when the call the plants have something in mind for us. We <laughs> it's yeah, it's irresistible sometimes. Do, do
0: do you notice that like when you're uh you know, you've taught for so long. You've you've taught in schools, you know. Gosh, you know, you probably, you know, it's probably impossible to comprehend how many times you've taught, especially beginners. Um, do you notice that in people that the people that come there, there seems to be some kind of calling or something that brings them there?
1: Oh, definitely, it's definitely a calling. And <clears throat> Rosemary always says that you know the plants call us, and and then we serve. But uh, I, yeah, I've, I've seen people that that had a real passion, and now I'm teaching at Berkeley. It's a different. Type of student, but <clears throat> I've been teaching at Berkeley for three and a half years. I teach medical ethnobotany mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me the lab the lab um, medical ethnobotany and California native plant life. we do field trips and so forth. but this last semester, I had um, almost thirty students in the medical ethnobotany lab. We see a lot of plants and go to the garden and mm-hmm. and learn plants' uses and identification plant families and so forth from different cultures, um, and, and it's really, really fun to be able to teach Berkeley students are usually very motivated, but out of about, I don't know, 26, 27 students, I had about six or seven that really were motivated and just, you know, turned, changed their life. I had a couple students that, you know, this class really really changed their life, and they Decided to go on, and and they they really are highly motivated to mm. take further training, and a couple of them have uh, one of them went to Bastier College, and mm-hmm. and uh, so it's really really exciting to see those few students that are just really have a fire in their belly and a lot. Um,
0: Hello, oh, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah, I'm here.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so so, but it's not everybody, but but you do see even in seminars and conferences, you you still see some, I don't, you know, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but probably uh, a few percent, up to 10 percent of students that just are really, really fire, have a fire in their belly. And mm-hmm. and um, you can see it's a calling for them. Wow. Wow.
0: So, so at, so um,
1: at. Teachers at, always, always live for those types of students that are, are so motivated and so passionate because that really feed, really excites us and gets our fire going too.
0: Well, but when you're working with someone as, as someone new like um and you're seeing that passionate student and they're like yeah, you know I'm, I really want this like what foundation or where do you come from when you're, where do you try to connect them to? You know, cause it seems like different teachers I see uh, uh, or I've heard a lot from, you know, people like Susan Weed and other people that I've read their books or seen them at conferences. What's what's so dyna- wonderful is how dynamic it is at the conferences when I, I can go see someone like yourself or Stephen Buhner or Susan Weed and, 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 and there's, there's course similarities, but there's, you know, everyone's got their own voice and what they've discovered is their way to connect. What do you find that is for you?
1: Well, that's changed quite a bit over the years. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, herbalism is, is basically authority based in, in one sense. I mean, there's a good aspect to that in that it's an oral tradition, written tradition that's passed on from generation to generation. The stories it's really generated are really oriented, oriented towards, Telling storytelling, and that's the way that people remembered how to use herbs and and how to treat themselves and prevention and incorporate the the herbal medicine into their lives through stories. It's easy to remember, um, and especially before before writing. So it is an oral tradition, and it's passed down to generation to generation. But the other side of it is is that that people m- tend to enhance. You know stories and 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 make up their own stuff as they go along, and some of it's good good stuff, and I think some of it is is fantasy, and and so so it, it and it is it is kind of a uh, it is an oral tradition on one hand, but on the other hand, it's it's authority based, and so a young student might listen to somebody and say, well, so and so said that that this herb is is used for that, and it really really works well. And so this is the herb for that, and and even things like ginseng is a, is a man's herb, and dong quai is a women's herb. Some stories that get started like that, or or golden seal, uh, you shouldn't take that long term. It's toxic, or you know. So you, you get stories like that that are passed on. Echinacea shouldn't be or should be used long term, and people just pass that on. And now as a scientist, I mean, I'm a root digging herbalist, and mm-hmm. and certainly. Um, honor my ancestors and the traditions, but I'm also an, a scientist nowadays, and and I, I so I I really encourage students to think for themselves, and to really investigate for themselves, and so it, yeah, it's wonderful taking classes from Susan Weed and Michael Chiera and, and Rosemary and another herbalist, and, other and uh, but I think we have to really take it take take it as an inspiration of somebody who has dedicated their life to herbal medicine and has a passion. And I think the passion is what, what we really is, is, can be passed on, the passion and the excitement and, and some basic information maybe. But I, I don't think we should pay too much attention to the, to the minute details because those are the things that we have to learn for ourselves. We have to start, and I'm just encouraging students all the time to stop reading about it and talking about it and mm-hmm. just do it. Mm. And start collecting herbs, and going to the fields, and looking at weeds, and and dissecting flowers, and looking at them more closely, and taking notes on plant populations and how they're growing, and what plants are growing together, and really investigate, look deeply, and experience it for yourself. And brew, go out and pick some rosemary, and brew it up, and drink, drink it, drink it at a time. <coughs> um, so it, it's really. Really doing it for yourself and not reading about it so much. There, yes, there's so much good information out there. Just use the use the teachers for inspiration. Well, they've done it for a long time, and mm-hmm. and and they and, and I. They're, I'm hearing that it's safe, and that that I can use plants fre- fresh, and um, so so it, it's just really important to. For, for me to to encourage students to to really learn for themselves and experiment and practice and and look more deeply and also use a site like pubmed.gov which is the world's largest medical database hmm. uh, that that is free it's free to search uh, it's it's the national library of medicine and so you can look up almost any topic herbs for asthma herbs for <coughs> for diabetes <laughs> excuse me and then you can you can see what research has been done out there you can get a review article and read about it and even the tradition somewhat in the introductions but you can see what what actual clinical studies have been done on certain things i mean just because an herb doesn't have clinical studies human mm-hmm. clinical studies doesn't mean that it doesn't work but it's nice to know that st john's wort has Thirty clinical studies, many of them control double-blind studies, show in meta-analyses. Excuse me, where expert reviewers review or review all the studies, and the and conclude that St. John's Wort extracts are just as effective as mm-hmm. as Zoloft or or other SSRIs with half the side effects and half and and a quarter of the cost. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice to know that even modern science and modern medicine and more systematic investigation of herbal medicine as showing that that they are are very effective and they are safe and that's another piece of the of the puzzle today especially for of course medical practitioners and if if herbal medicine is going to be integrated into ma- mainstream health care I think we need <clears throat> we need these types of investigations to go along with with uh, the you know handing down the the folk Book tales and the stories mm-hmm. about about how dandelion is good for your liver and can help with acne or something like that um, that <coughs> many of these stories are a little bit vague and mm-hmm. and they change so mm-hmm. depending on who's telling the story um,
0: yeah well seems there's a lot of information out there and there's also it seems like probably a uh, majority of people who want to learn about herbs are probably mm-hmm. wanting to be in the kitchen herbalist or the family herbal type of situation where they just want to take care of, you know, stay healthy and take care of the bumps and bruises and things that come up. And, um, so yeah, that's right. And and that can, and that can be, you know, a lot of the information going too deep seems like it would be a little paralyzing because there's, there's so much, I mean, I, you know, versus so, so I don't know. I mean, it's just a matter of handful of books or whatever people find or find a good teacher or something to, to bring them through, but uh,
1: yeah, get but, uh, them excited and <clears throat> and feel comfortable with experiment experimenting themselves. Right, right.
0: Yeah, and, and also I think it's really great to – and why I really like, you know, the answer. I just think it's really cool. I'm talking to somebody who wrote a Peterson's Field Guide.
2: <laughs>
0: that must have been some experience. I mean, I, I, I do, do you really recommend that people, you know, just really key and, and know the local plants of their area? I mean, is that a good way to, to do it, just using field – just a basic field guide or through families? Or how do you like, you know, just your layperson to go about the 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 – you know learning the plants of their area
1: well i mean any any and all routes if you have a local person a local mm-hmm. botanist take a mm-hmm. class from a, a junior right. college in plant taxonomy or as we have the class that we have at berkeley is california native plant life mm-hmm. uh, that's a wonderful way to to be introduced to the local plants if you can find a teacher that at a local college that ha- you know that has a phd in botany or that really has a lot of field experience that that's a wonderful introduction, but even a person who has a lot of field experience and and not much formal training uh, that really knows the plants uh, get yeah, so I think a living teacher uh, is is the best if you can find one, right. but uh, that that saves a lot of time, but you know the way I did it, I had my dad, but I also spent many, many years out in the field with with a flora, with a local flora, just keying out plants. I'd sit down with a handful of flowers and plants and spend hours looking at the floral structures and trying to figure out what they were. And and in that, we we make a connection with the plants. So there's no substitute for just getting out in fields and looking at the weeds and trying to identify them ourselves. We spend time and make a connection with the plants and then pick them and brew them up and taste them and even eat them. Of course, I, I tend to eat a lot of wild plants, nibble them and chew them and swallow them right when I'm out. And the people often think it's funny because I'll be talking about uh sow thistle or something and I pick the tops off and just start eating it uh, in the field. And people oftentimes think that's weird, but uh, you, you can eat these plants. I mean, rosemary, just go out in your backyard and start eating the rosemary we don't have to actually formally brew it up. Right, right. Just, just just chew it and swallow it. And that's what I tend to do a lot. Your basanta when I'm out in the field, I always pick some shoots and chew them up and swallow them or suck on them. And uh, any wild mints or whatever's out there. I'm always nibbling, smelling, tasting, making a connection with them. But um yeah, field guides, any any root is good. Field guides especially uh, like a Peterson Field Guide that has pictures. And and uh, if you want to get more technical uh, and enjoy investigating them more deeply than your local flora, uh, like, you know, in California we have the Jepson Manual, which is for the whole state, but many times there are regional floras too, like we have a flora of Santa Cruz County, flora of Marin County, flora of San... Of, um, monterey county so get a local floor if you can that will narrow down what you're looking at and uh, and learn to use the keys mm-hmm. uh, the keys are just dichotomous choices that you where they'd say the plant is a shrub or or is it a tree or you know or what what's the flower color and then you're you make different choices and then you eventually arrive at maybe the exact genus and species of the plant that you're looking at and and uh, that's good to know now, also, I always recommend that people learn the few lethal ones that are out there in your environment. It's, that's very important to uh, get a, a book on toxic plants uh, or or a field guide of your area and learn that that water hemlock could actually kill you and poison hemlock. And and uh, if there are any ones that are actually lethal, uh, make sure to learn those first and and respect those.
0: You, you know I, I I gotta ask you just because this question actually just came up someone was talking about water hemlock in our in our forum in our user forum and they're saying that uh, they picked chickweed that was growing next to hemlock and they ate it and it gave them a bad reaction now plants can't can, can plants in all your research I like I I, I was it, I, I was stumped because I said, well, maybe I really don't know. I never heard of this, but maybe I really don't know because it's nature, and nature is, does what it does, and it's, uh, it's it's impossible to understand it all. Um, the, In your experience, do, the, the pl- uh, can plants take on chemical properties of plants that are growing next to it? I mean, I'm thinking chickweed is very watery, and maybe it's something in the water that got in the plant and it absorbed. What What do you know about that? Do you know any? No.
1: <clears throat> I really don't think that's possible. Think that's what uh, I i, I, I I'm a chemist. I, I know chemistry pretty well. Ecology, mm. I, 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 allelopathy. Uh, I mean, chemicals do excrete chemicals from their roots and and their leaves and aromatic chemicals and so on. That's called allelopathy, and mm-hmm. to kind of signal other plants that they they shouldn't grow too closely. That there are limited resources. They're competing for those resources, or they're if you look at it another way, they're they're agreeing to to partition the resources in a certain way. Uh, so they're kind of working together. But uh, no, I, you know, plants, plant, plants don't really, uh, if you pick chickweed next to water hemlock, that, that's very unlikely that that's, I, I think that's pretty, pretty impossible, that that's going to take up those alkaloids in the plant, that the plant just isn't set up for that. Mm-hmm. And you um, <clears throat> it, it would have to actually produce those alkaloids I mean, you have to think those alkaloids are going to be traveling through the soil, migrating to the soil, and then the chickweed's going to pick up those alkaloids. No, that that, that just isn't going to happen.
0: Okay, good. That's what I was thinking, but I just wanted to be sure since you just mentioned it and I had you on the phone. <laughs> no, so. no,
1: that wouldn't happen. But on the other hand, you know, I, I think it's really easy to kind of trip yourself out. You know, if there's poison hemlock growing there and you're picking, you, th- you kind of think, well... Um, you know, did I accidentally pick a, a little bit of a leaf of a poison hemlock in with the chickweed and and eat it? And I know I've harvested roots around uh, around plants like uh, hellebore, <coughs> um, wild hellebore up in the up in the uh, mm-hmm. up in the Sierra. I, I've dug roots, uh, gentian or something that are growing right next to the hellebore roots, and I'm thinking, well, did I accidentally get a get one of those toxic roots in with a gentian? Um, so, you know, it's probably better to not, not dig roots right next to a plant <laughs> that has lethal roots, you know. That's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's how um, the, the famous uh, death camas, that's how, that's how people, Native American Indians, died from, from death camas. They were picking blue camas and mm-hmm. interspersed with it were death camas roots. And once in a while they did dig a, a death camas root. So,
0: And up here they had camas like farms they would make little areas uh,
1: patches and
0: and then harvest when it was flowering so they could tell the difference (laughs) yeah yeah exactly um yeah
1: so learn the lethal ones very well that's 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 the first step exactly um there are a lot of
0: resources for that too and um great and uh your work that you're doing now you're studying all i mean the whole doctor on artemisia huh
2: yeah that's so
0: so that's of course for those don't know that it's the genus that mugwort's in and um and but you but but i heard you at a botany class and what you're finding out is that though i heard you say that though you know the way things are keyed out and field guides and whatnot in that way of organizing plants is great learning tool but you're saying it's actually in reality with some of the genetic research you were doing it's actually a little different than we think
1: no, yeah, much, much, uh, much different than than what where my background is coming from for mm-hmm. sure. The, at Berkeley, uh, the PhD is largely focused on phylogenetics, which mm. is looking at using DNA sequences and of course morphology and other characters to to really determine the the ancestry of plants, how they're related. Um, their lineages, which I really like the idea of um, <clears throat> their how how where they 've spread where they 've come from uh for instance you know and i i didn 't know a lot about this when I started the program, <clears throat> but uh you know there there is a pollen record for artemisia they've they've got cores and mm-hmm. and um and also <clears throat> when they 're drilling for <clears throat> excuse me oil or taking or any any drilling they or even sometimes it's exposed in rock surfaces in cliffs and things that have been worn away by erosion for for centuries and centuries maybe thousands of years but the the pollen record for Artemisia goes back 30 million years so that's hmm. when it first showed up in central asia that we think that's where the genus started and then it came into north america the first pollen records in in the western united states in montana and wyoming is from around 18 20 million years ago. So if you can, it's just hard to imagine that, that, like for instance, mugwort, western mugwort, or, or mountain mugwort, which we have here in the west, have their ancestors came into North America from Asia over the land bridge <clears throat> of Beringia about uh, probably around 18 to 20 million years ago. So I mean, how adapted is that? How I mean, when you think of looking at a mugwort. Their ancestors were here 20 million years ago. It just blows my mind, but but that's what phylogenetics is really focused on: is is finding, uh, is is really using modern plants to infer uh, by all these modern methods that we have using computers, really inferring when the ancestors uh, were around, how long they've been here, what what species are that we, what we can see now are most closely related. Um, and, and that, that really talks a lot about the medicinal uses and the energetics and, and other properties, pharmacological properties of plants because the more closely they are related to each other by ancestry, mm-hmm. the more likely they are to, to have a similar medicinal effect or pharmacological effect or chemical uh, profile. For instance, if you look at valerian, uh, people often have asked me over the years, well, you know, Valeriana officinalis, the European one, is the one that all the research is on. That's the traditional one that was used for sedation or calming. Can we use the the ones that are in North America, like we have three or four in California, are those the same? Are the, do those same have the same sedative properties? Right. And which ones are more likely to be to be stronger and more like the European, the traditional one. Well, you can figure all that out with <clears throat> with phylogenetics. You can make a tree. You can <clears throat> collect the samples and and match up the DNA sequences and see the changes in ba- in in, uh, in bases uh, A T C G over the over the over time. And and you can draw a tree you can the computer and the statistical algorithms that we're using, you can generate a tree that will infer how what the sister groups are. So you can look at a really active one like uh well, in my case Artemisia annua, which has got the anti malarial drug and anti cancer drug in it called um artemisinin
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you can look and see in this very large genus of about 450 species are there any other plants in in artemisia uh, that maybe lo- grow in my local area that have artemisinin in it? and you can and basically that's what i am i'm inferring by matching up all these sequences by co- by collecting the plants in the wild by and analyzing them i can find out which ones also have artemisinin in the case of valerian or arnica or many of the other traditionally used herbs, which other species that are in a, in a different continent even, can those be used? Are those the same? And so you can answer questions like that uh, that are more practical. But just understanding, it's really important to understand how plants are related to each other uh, and whether they're the same taxon or, or actual entity or not, is really important for conservation efforts Hmm. and that's what that's what a lot of the work in my department is focused on is conservation really discovering which lineages are actually separate or and unique uh and and which really which ones we really should work on preserving and uh, putting our conservation efforts in into populations and so forth uh population biology is and conservation is really another thing that we work on a lot but my work on artemisia is broader than than um, than just the phylogenetics that's the foundation then i'm also analyzing the essential oils the the volatile oils because all artemisia have have aromas they're they're very aromatic that's why they've been used in medicine and so i've i've been doing analytical work with gc mass spec gas chromatography to to really identify the individual compounds, maybe 100 or 150 different individual compounds in the, the volatile fraction that, that we can smell. It's an amazing array of chemical compounds in there and very variable depending on the, the species. Uh, also working with eco- the ecology of populations. Um, and then finally, the last part of my work is going to be focused on on really looking at the historical uses of artemisias and probably twenty or thirty different species of Artemisia have been used traditionally over time in different cultures. In China alone in traditional Chinese medicine about ten or fifteen were were used and are mentioned. And in the western cultures you've got tarragon, you've got wormwood of course, mugwort, Uh, you've got a number of other species um, that that southern wood that that were used and mentioned in the ancient herbals. So my what I'm going to do is go back through time. I have a library, herbal library with about eight thousand books, oh. out, with with old herbals and materia <laughs> oh, medica's. And I've been collecting them since since 1968. I bought my first my first herbal. Uh, so so I have a very extensive library, but I also have access to Berkeley. Um, the, the Bancroft Library has an incredible historical collection. UCSF at, at San Francisco, the medical school, has really good, good uh, old herbals and, and medical books. So I'm going to basically comb through the the literature very carefully in all different cultures, and then and then make a huge data matrix on the uses of of Artemisia throughout history, <clears throat> and then using these same phylogenetic techniques uh, infer a tree, <clears throat> come up with a tree that shows the knowledge and the, the, the lineages of knowledge and how the knowledge was passed on from generation to generation, herbal to herbal, like starting with Dioscorides or in the first century A.D., 1900 years ago, or even the, the uh, Syrians and the Egyptians and the Greeks my, looking through their literature, what what we have, and uh, and then drawing a tree, using these modern methods and computers to to determine how the knowledge was passed on from culture to culture, and uh, where it's coming from. So so that's an exciting project. Wow! That would be the last the last part <laughs> of my my dissertation.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Thanks for sharing uh, all that with us. That's that's. Um... I'm looking forward to see what you do with all that, and probably anyone who um, goes to a herbal conference where you're speaking at in the next uh, few years will probably get a good presentation of what your latest things that you're doing. So,
1: yeah, I'm incorporating it into my talks more and more. What I what I've learned about ecology and chemistry and That's cool. and uh, and I'll, I just like to say one thing about science in general. You know, herbal, herbalism has been Sometimes at odds with, with a more scientific approach, mm-hmm. traditional herbalists. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that, that as I've been, if i studied science and I've become more of a scientist, it's rather than making it more dry or, or separating it from, from you, you might say, a more heart connection or a more earth, earth connection, uh, the spiritual aspects of plants, it's really opened up my eyes to how incredible. Nature is and how incredible plants are what a what a web it is uh, mm. and and how much mystery is still there I mean just looking at a leaf and knowing what's kind of something of what's going on inside that leaf all the the gas exchange the the photosynthesis the you know that a, that a leaf and the chlorophyll can can take a the 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 photon packet of energy that comes ninety three million miles from the sun, and excite an electron to an, to another energy level, uh, and that's how it captures the this this small amount of energy. Well, overall, it's a huge amount, but but just you know when the light the light is shining on a leaf, what's going on inside there to to capture that that energy from the sun from so far away and turn that and store, store the sugars, that, that uh, is how the, how the plants capture that, that sun energy. I mean, just to know some of what's going on inside the leaf, it's really a miracle. It really is a, a just totally mind-blowing. So science has really opened up my eyes and, and, uh, and made me think more about the, the world that's around us, how plants are interacting, how they're living in the world, their, their ancestral connections, Chemistry, pharmacology—all of these things blend together to, to give us, a, I think, a more complete picture of of what's going on in, in the plant world, and, and so that we we even feel a stronger connection uh, to plants because humans and plant interaction has obviously been going on for thousands and thousands of years, yeah. and uh, if not longer.
0: Wow! Thank you for uh, thank you. I pretty appreciate that work you're doing too because I've talked to a lot of folks on this show and. And, um, and it's, I'm really impressed how many people, uh, are kind of saying, Hey, you know, things don't have to be separate here in the scientific or, you know, even medical world, you know, we can, uh, you know, work together and this is how, you know, there doesn't have to be this or that. It can be all work together and be complementary So that's wonderful.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: so before we just wrap it up, uh, People had written in some questions and maybe can just give some uh, quick answers for people because uh, we got so into the conversation that I kind of lost track of time. Michael here loved your Medicinal Mushroom book and he just wanted to know if there are any significant discoveries or added info on Medicinal Mushrooms since your book was published that you've, you know, big ahas maybe that you've realized since you've published the book
1: well a lot of things and i've been working on a third edition for <clears throat> for a few years but the literature is vast since i wrote the second edition mm. and i've been i have written a couple of review articles that are available on the international mm-hmm. journal of medicinal Mushroom site which is bagelhouse.com uh, okay. b e g e l so you can check those those are more recent uh, reviews that where where i talk about how beta glucans uh, the 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 giant polymers in, in in mushrooms how they affect our immune system the the lectin um, receptor sites which are ancient sites in our body that are triggered by by mushroom compounds um, and and so that that whole story is a fascinating one I think why do why do animals respond to to mushroom polymers, cell wall components, the beta glucans, why do we respond in such a profound way that it triggers this this broad spectrum immune response from us that turns out to be protective against cancer and viruses and bacteria and have an immuno enhancing effect. And that whole story is just fascinating. And uh I, I do write about that in, in depth in in the in the reviews that I've written uh, for the International Journal of Medicinal Mushroom, which can be downloaded uh, on the Bagel House site. Okay, great. Uh, so, so I would recommend those those reviews for more up to date stuff. But you know, I've I've learned a lot. I've done every every year. Well, just in this mushroom season that we've had in California, the last few months, I've given my medicinal mushroom talk a number of times. I'm actually giving it tomorrow uh, in at UC Berkeley uh, to a group of people. So I, I've really been keeping up on the the literature, and I I, I just can't really mention one thing that I've learned. I've learned so many things mm-hmm. in the last five or ten years, but, uh, but I will say that there are a lot of unanswered questions about the dose, <clears throat> what species is the best, uh, mycelium or fruiting body, which one is the, is the, the most potent, uh, <clears throat> the, the type of preparation, a water-based tea, an, an enzyme product that breaks the mushroom down, um, a tincture, so so what's the best preparation? These are questions that are not completely fully answered yet, but we do know a lot more than we did 10 or 15 years ago. That's true. And just in summary, I would say that that uh, the fruiting body and the mycelium together certainly seem to be a good way to go. Uh and and I would say that I'm not an, a big fan of tinctures. Uh there are a few exceptions, Rishi tincture is good for for um, problems with the nervous system like insomnia, anxiety, and so forth because the the compounds that are active are smaller molecular weight. They are triterpenes and those are soluble in alcohol. However, the the beta glucans are not soluble in alcohol. In fact, they're precipitated. But they use them commercially. They use they add alcohol to a a water based extract in order to precipitate the beta glucans and isolate them. So tinctures are not the best way to go for immune activity. It's better to use a hot water extract or or taking the the fruiting body of the mycelium and steam it and break the the cell walls down. You have to cook it or steam it in some way uh, in order to make the the compounds, the the beta-glucans, more bioavailable and to break down the chitin, which we cannot absolutely digest.
2: So Mm
1: -hmm. mushroom powders is not the way to go either. You're just grinding up the, the mushrooms, that's not the way to go either. Uh, you have to cook them or steam steam the product, as far as I'm concerned, for the highest activity.
0: Wow, um, okay, okay,
1: So, So, yeah, the, and as far as dose goes, um, you know, I, I think two fruiting bodies of shiitake several times a week is certainly good for just basic immune enhancement. Uh, my, my basic dose of a mushroom extract is around two to six grams per day in a divided dose.
0: Wow, okay.
1: Or a tea, or a tea. So boil, take about 15, 20, 25 grams of the the dried mushroom, boil it down for an hour or two, and then drink a half a cup to a cup morning and evening. That would be my basic dose. And there are a lot of good products out there too on the market now, much better than we used to have.
0: Great. And point people towards your book for more info on that. And, um, yeah. So another question was, um, kind of skipping around here. Cause a lot of folks have questions. You can just, I, I just want to say people put questions in, um, a lot of questions, you know, you could just kind of ask on the forum as a new topic because, um, you know, that we could, a lot of them, I kind of ones that I know that people on the forum can answer. I just want to ask Christopher a few that, you know, maybe were best suited for him and he can help us with since we got him. Um, and, um, a really good question was the best source of information on what menstruum extracts, um, like, uh, let's see, is like, she's wondering a resource, um, that talks about, um, like which menstruums might work best with different herbs. Like for example, what's a, uh, difference between an echinacea extract and a glycerin versus alcohol. Do you know of a good resource or do you just have this rule of thumb that you always just go by?
1: Um I have uh yeah I mean that's that's uh been a long standing question you ha and there's unfortunately there's no
2: mm-hmm.
1: black and white easy answer the, mm-hmm. the I think it takes some study to to really realize what you're trying to get out of the herb first of all, for instance, for echinacea uh, you're talking about echinacea and glycerin echinacea in fact any herb is a complex mixture of compounds, so there there's not typically one compound that you're trying to get out necessarily. However, having said that, there are some exceptions, like golden seal, you're looking for the berberine. Mm-hmm. But but there is an essential oil that you want to get to that might be part of the activity. And there are other compounds. So um, I think my general my general advice on, on really finding getting the best information on that is to study the chemistry of the plant. And for that I would I would mention one book that I think is probably the best one out there, and that's the, the Potter's uh, New Cyclopedia of Herbs. That the, the I guess it's a, the third edition now that was published about two or three years ago. You can buy that online. The Potter's New Cyclopedia of Herbal Medicine. Uh, that, that, that because I recommend that book because it has so many herbs in it, including even some Chinese herbs, and it has a summary of the, what we know about the chemistry, including the sources and also the pharmacology, dose, traditional uses, but it has a very good summary of the chemistry. So once you know the chemistry, for instance, in echinacea, or look it up on PubMed, many times you can find some very good information on PubMed.gov. For instance, echinacea, what are the active compounds uh, that you're looking for? Well, we have some lipophilic compounds, in other words, mainly alcohol soluble, um, non-water-soluble compounds that that cause that buzzy uh, tingling sensation. Um, those are alkylamides, and those those are water-soluble if you boil the water, <clears throat> but not very. They're they're more soluble in high alcohol content, and they're not very soluble in glycerin. So if you, so that's part of the immunomodulating effect. Also, you have polysaccharides, which are water-soluble. Um, those would come into glycerin. Those would come into a tea. Um, and, and you have other compounds, too, that are non-water-soluble and non-alcohol-soluble. So for me, the, the best preparation of echinacea would be to how the Indians used to do it, and that is just basically take the fresh root or dried root and chew it, mm-hmm. chew it up and swallow it. And you're, you're actually going to get a full spectrum of all the compounds. When, and I will say this, and that is look at the traditional use. Plantain was used fresh. And, and it was chewed or applied or, or eaten or made a tea out of but, but also used fresh a lot. It was just applied to a wound, just uh, chewed up or ground up the fresh material. And actually, that, if you look at the chemistry, that's the best way to do it. That's absolutely the best way to do it because the active compounds are, are unstable. So if you look at traditional medicine, mm-hmm. how, how it was used, how it was prepared, oftentimes that will give you a big clue about the best way to use it. And then study the chemistry, study the pharmacology, look on PubMed, look on in the potters. And then there's another book called the Merck Index. Get a fairly recent, like the 11th edition of the Merck Index. And you can look up any compound, like, for instance, the alkylamides or menthol and peppermint, and and that will give you some basic information like how volatile is it, what's the boiling point, so is it going to come off in the steam of a tea, and also the solubility. Is it very soluble in water? Is it slightly soluble in hot water? Is it soluble in alcohol? Uh, so between those two books, the Potters and the Merck Index, you can really determine uh, determine a lot about how to tailor your menstruum, what type of preparation is best. Is it a hot water extract, an alcoholic extract, glycerite, and mm-hmm. so forth? I will generally say that glycerides are, tend to be the weakest of all um, of all extracts. They're only used, I think, for children is the best way, and to put some flavoring in there. I don't really favor glycerides. Yeah, and how many people much. do,
0: it seems. so? Uh, they, people want them, seem to want them to be really... <laughs> <But>
1: they, <laughs> no, they're, they're just not very strong, and, and maybe for kids they have a little bit of a use, but I would much prefer a tea. And I, and I want to say one more thing that I've learned, that through the literature and through personal experience, and that is, the tea is the chewing the and swallowing the herbs is the best because you get the full spectrum. You mix it with the saliva. It's also the most convenient. You just go out in your garden and you know, eat it. You can also juice it. That's a great way to do it. You can dry the juice at a carrier and dry the juice in a food dehydrator. That's really a great way. Like nettle juice or. Or plantain juice, just dry the juice. That's an incredible way because you're getting everything. You're getting all that's in the plant in its whole form. And uh, the next best is a tea. It's definitely better than a tincture. Because studies show that that even though compounds are not very uh, water-soluble, if you look at them in an isolated form, in the context of the plant, the plant attaches sugar molecules and create a glycoside for many compounds like steroids, for instance in in um, ginseng, those compounds, those sterols are not very water soluble in and of themselves, but in the plant, the plant produce a- adds sugar molecules to it and why because in the inside the plant it's all a water world it's a wa- it's water based environment mm. so the plant has to attach sugars to be able to move it around you know from the roots to the leaves and vice versa so when you make a tea, you're getting almost everything out of that plant. I don't care whether the compounds are large and not very water-soluble in and of themselves. In the plant, they are water-soluble. So teas are absolutely the best way to go <laughs> for, for many types of, of of herbs, most most herbs. Um, and, and I'm just a big fan of tea today. Because
0: That's great. That's great because no matter how complex you can get in all the research and all those books and manuals, it all comes back to a cup of tea. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. I've come full circle. You know, I, I've spent years and years studying chemistry, pharmacology, and I come back to the very basic, simple herbs, garlic, ginseng, turmeric, you know, the ones, uh, nettles, the wild weeds, the ones that you can grow locally, the ones you can harvest, the weeds, the spices in your kitchen. I mean, can I? do I have time to tell a quick story? Sure, sure. Um, you know, th- I was doing a, a class down at uh, Whole Foods in in Austin, um, not not more than a couple of years ago, and uh, I, I had this I had this really bad cold coming on, and uh, and I had a sore throat. My I was losing my voice. I, I was coughing, and I thought, Oh my gosh, I got to give this big talk tomorrow to Whole Foods buyers, and and I'm just really coming down with a bad cold. I don't even know if I can talk tomorrow. And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Austin and this the, this huge new Whole Foods there. This is the world's largest health food store. I mean, it's like a football stadium. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you, you walk down the aisles and, and you know, there, there are little, um, little environments of wine and cheese and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. bologna and sausage and wines and, you know, all this other stuff. And then the supplement, the dietary supplement department is like, you know, 100 feet long, and it goes up way over your head, so you'd have to get a ladder to get up to the highest products, so I was wandering down this aisle thinking, well, what product could I buy um, that's that going to help me with my, my cold and flu and my, my throat and everything, and, and so I can be better for the talk the next morning, and I'm walking down these aisles, and I'm just thinking, well, wow, you know, I mean, I know so much about about the products that have been involved in the industry for a long time, but I'm really confused what of what product to really get. Should it be an elderberry syrup? Should it be an echinacea extract? Um, you know, and so in in this befuddled state I was walking down the aisle and then I happened to glance down one of the side aisles, uh one of the, the breaks in the in the aisle and I saw the produce department. So I thought, Well wait a minute, you know, there are some real herbs down there. So I wandered down there <laughs> And I ended up buying like some ginger and garlic, and they had bundles of organic thyme and and sage and and oregano, <clears throat> and so I just ended up buying a a bundle of fresh herbs and some garlic and ginger, and went home and just started eating all this stuff. I didn't even have any way to brew it up. I just started eating thyme and and sage leaves and and garlic and ginger, and the next morning I was great. I was feeling. Great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> It's all so, supermarket you know, herbalism. Just <laughs> go to the source. Just go to the source. <laughs> exactly.
0: You know, Christopher, um, you have a great uh, – so uh, com. folks can um, – you have some great stuff like the online prescriber database and virtual herbal, that yeah. kind of stuff. So I encourage folks to go there. I also noticed that um, – are you still offering your correspondence course?
1: Yes, yes. You, there's a link to the correspondence mm-hmm. course, which is – Foundations of, Verbal, uh, of verbalism.com. You can either go to that to see about my my um, distance learning courses, um, and or you can link it through through Um
0: And I always like to ask people I interview because uh, um, you know to, if there's a preferred way that you like folks to check out and get your books. Do you just go to Amazon, or do you have a favorite little online bookstore you like to support, or do you have your own thing, or how does that work?
1: Yeah, Amazon is fine or or, or any, you know, I, I always think that I mean some of my books have been around for a while, so so you can go to bookfinder.com and you can probably find a used copy okay. of almost any of my books mm-hmm. uh, out there. So so I would buy a used copy first and and then or you can find used copies on Amazon, but bookfinder is the world's largest online source for used books. Um or, or abe.com, abe right um but but so any of those sources buy a used copy of it that's great very few copy.
0: people very few people care <laughs> people towards used copies of their books that's great yeah
1: yeah oh <laughs> sure i mean it, to me it should be the, the information should be Available and free, and I I just want to share as much as possible. And you do have a ton
0: of articles on healthy.net as well, like practically a book's worth, I noticed right
1: there. Yeah, yeah, they've got a lot more articles, and I have some more articles on my website. Mm -hmm. Great, and I have have a couple uh, of videos and PowerPoint shows and so forth.
0: And for those uh, listening to this right on the herbmentor.com site, you can just link. uh, Christopher's site will open in a new page, so you can listen while you poke around on (laughs) on the site there. And um, all right, and you know it's been just a tremendous honor and lots of fun hanging out with you today, and I really appreciate your time. I know you're real busy with stuff, so thank you so much.
1: well, thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate it and had a, had a great time myself.
0: Awesome. Maybe we'll have you back if I get a chance or something. we
1: <laughs> were maybe, we'll maybe okay, catch up sure. with you Any at a conference. topic
0: that you can think of is fine, yeah. Awesome, awesome. All right, thanks a lot.
1: Okay, thanks, John.
0: Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.